This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Investec Asset Management. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. It's Tuesday, so it's the big picture with Investec Asset Management. And with us from Investec Asset Management in London tonight is Assistant Portfolio Manager, Multi-Asset, Jason Borborough. Jason, you sent me an incredibly complicated piece. Well, it's complicated for somebody like myself. And the headline was Correlation Fixation. I'm just going to read you one sentence from it. And it says here, Correlation is a blunt measure which cannot differentiate between gains and losses. It tells you how, on average, an asset moves relative to another. Is there correlation fixation? fixation in asset management and in the investment community in general. Hi, Lindsay. Yeah, well, thank you. I think it's a fair point in terms of the language used and how we can break that down and make it a bit more simple or easy to understand. So I think in general, there is. The point we're making is that there's nothing wrong in terms of focusing to some extent on what correlation is telling you. It's just ensuring that you're using it as one of the number of tools when you're making an investment decision. And ultimately, I think that's where perhaps people are going a bit wrong currently. Just give me an example of correlation from an asset management standpoint. So the way you might use correlation is to say the relationship between two assets, for example, equities and bonds, do they tend to move in sync with one another or do they tend to move in opposite directions to one another? So the higher the number of correlation, then typically the more those two assets tend to move together. So if you have a plus one correlation, then they should move step for step with one another. So if one goes up, the other would expect it to go up as well. If you have a minus one correlation, then the opposite. So if one goes up, the other should go down at exactly the same point in time, effectively. You say, we believe correlation needs to be viewed in combination with other characteristics to get a fuller appreciation of an investment's behaviour. Most people would say, well, why do you need to work that out anyway? What's the point of working out what the correlation is between the movement in the equity market and the bond market, as long as the assets that you choose and your asset allocation and your investor behaviour makes money for the client? Do we really need to know about correlation? I think now we've moved to thinking more about risk return rather than just return. So whether or not you've got to an end point of a positive return is an important question, but I think how you got there is important too. So if you have a very bumpy ride, then not everyone who invests has got an infinite investment horizon, and therefore if you've gone up a lot in a short space of time but then fallen a lot in a short space of time but then managed to eke out some gains by the end of it. Well, some investors may not have, have had that full time to actually generate positive returns. So looking at risk-awarded or risk-adjusted returns, rather, I think is more important now. And that's where certainly as a multi-asset team within Investec, we're moving towards. And that idea of concentrating on how you generate the best possible risk-reward is where this correlation point or this piece comes from. Can historical correlation models be used in an anticipatory way? In other words, you might say, well, the bond market in the 1980s did this and that preempted the equity market doing that, if you see what I mean. I think, again, it's, it's about using it in combination with other tools. So the problem, I guess, with historical correlations is that they really tell you about how assets tended to move at that point in time, kind of obviously, I suppose. Yes. But the drivers behind those movements at that point in time will not necessarily be repeated now. So as you say, the drivers that moved the bond market in the late 90s or in the early 2000s relative to those which moved the equity market may not be so persistent currently. 
So whereas perhaps investors rely now on the fact that bonds will exhibit a negative correlation to equities, i.e. when equities go up, they expect that maybe bonds will lose money and vice versa. The issue, I suppose, following quite significant monetary policy easing post the financial crisis is that you might find that both are driven by the same set of drivers. And that is, as the carpet is taken from underneath investors, as QE is unwound, then perhaps you find that both equities and bonds get driven by the same set of factors. And that's really why we're trying to say in one way, correlation is something that you should concentrate on, yes, but it's not what you should rely on because you have to think about it, I guess, logically. Why are these assets exhibiting a relationship and does it make sense? You have one paragraph which is headed managing and evolving correlation. What do you mean by that? So what we're saying is that you, I guess, quite commonly now find these things called correlation matrices. matrices. So you'll find a set of figures on one side going down and then going across another set of figures. And what they tell you in one figure is how one asset relates to another. So the confusing paragraph that you pointed out in terms of why correlation doesn't give you a full feeling or a, a rounded picture of how two assets behave relative to one another is because it's just one figure. So it just says, if one asset moves up, does the other asset happen to move with it? And the point we are making is that if you're looking at risk-adjusted returns, then you're more concerned really about whether one asset tends to move up in sympathy with another, but less down. So does it tend to capture more of the upside than it does the downside? And that's why we tend to focus on something called skew. And the way that we demonstrated the need to focus on other measures of risk rather than just correlation is by saying that if you were to generate this ideal investment product, so something which would effectively capture every up month on the MSCI World Index, and none of the down months, it would pretty much be the ideal investment is basically the kind of holy grail of investing. Now, we don't have the answer to that, but <laughs> the point that we would suggest from looking at the correlation of that asset to the MSL World Index is that it's quite surprisingly high. In fact, it's 80% correlated with it. But I don't think an investor would be too worried about that because ultimately they would experience only up, uh, only positive returns and no drawdowns at all. But the fact that it's positively correlated to such a high extent simply tells you that it's happened to move up every time the MSL World has happened to move up. So what we're saying in terms of managing an evolving correlation is don't just focus on that one blunt number because ultimately within the space of a year, you may have moved your correlation significantly. So our fund, for example, will actively reduce our correlation to risky or growth assets if the environment around us suggests that it makes sense to do so. And that could be because of event risk. So in 2016, you had a number of those. Um, You had the presidential elections. You had the Brexit referendum over in the UK. Even in 2017, we've had sort of significant risk events also, so Korean war problems and then also the French elections. So there have been plenty of reasons why you would might want to temporarily reduce your correlation to risky assets, but it doesn't mean that you should be running one correlation that's low at all points in time because otherwise you can't capture any of the positive returns that are available either. So what you're saying is that you haven't yet found this mystical, utopian, structured product that allows you all the benefit of the upside and none of the downside, but you are working on it. You say right at the end, the benefit of a correlation that varies over time can be an improvement in the skew of returns as strategy produces, which is perhaps the most important measure of its attractiveness. I think we've done enough theory now. I want to talk about bonds and equities to wrap up this conversation, if we can, Jason, because a lot of people have been predicting an unravelling of the bond market. We've had a sort of few full starts, but it's gone back on track again. And over four decades, I think, for example, the US bond market 
has been falling in terms of yield and rising in terms of prices. So if you've been out of bonds, you have, have lost out. If there is an unravelling for whatever reason, if interest rates do start to go up a little bit more than people are anticipating, what will be the effect on the equity market from your point of view? What do your studies say? Will that money go into equities or will that money be parked somewhere else and equities will get scared because of interest rates rising and the bond market coming off? I find this a fascinating, a fascinating prospect. Yeah, I think it is one of the key questions that most investors are toying with at the moment. The problem, I suppose, is the way in which it's phrased. So if there's an enormous rise in interest rates very, very quickly, then I think that's sufficient to short-circuit growth because ultimately at the moment, growth is not exactly going, uh, going sort of hell for leather in terms of GDP rates around the world or even earnings growth. And therefore, if you have a significant rise in the cost of borrowing, that's not going to help the equity market. And in that context, we'd expect it to de-rate. If there were a gradual rise in interest rates, well, that's more likely to be indicative of a more positive take on the growth environment because it suggests that central banks in in that context are probably tightening policy. And therefore, you probably would see a greater rotation towards equity markets. I think structurally, then, as as a team, we believe that interest rates will stay relatively low. And that's because of some of the structural drivers of that. So demographics are more favorable towards there being lower interest rates. Growth dynamics and productivity trends also suggest that growth is not going to take off significantly in the longer term. So therefore, we don't see there being a significant risk of a bond bear market. And what we actually take some comfort from is the fact that everyone seems to be constantly predicting that. Yes. In the short to medium term, what does worry us perhaps is that positioning in bonds seems to increase quite significantly. And the idea in the US that there'll be any kind of fiscal stimulus has been eroded from investors' minds. And therefore, the risk actually is that in the short term, and by that we probably mean six to 12 months perspective, that where central banks are starting to tighten liquidity in a concerted fashion across the globe, but perhaps not to an extreme extent, whilst we're also seeing that growth is okay, then bonds risk-reward may not stack up significantly. But against that context, you have that structural driver. So we wouldn't ever, I think, become extremely bearish on bonds. We're going to leave it there. It sounds like we've got a fascinating short, medium and long term, actually, Jason. Thanks so much for your time this evening. That's Jason Borbera, Assistant Portfolio Manager in the Multi-Asset Capability at Investec Asset Management in London. In South Africa, Investec Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider.